We begin a new series this week that is going to talk about finishing well, starting and finishing well in the faith. And Greg is going to open our series together this morning. So anticipate that the Lord is going to minister to your heart and soul as we have prayed this week to that end. Okay, our scripture reading, 2 Timothy 1, 1 through 7. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as my ancestors did, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan and to flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love, and self-control. Good morning. As Doug said, we're starting a new series in 2 Timothy. And a few months ago, Doug and I were planning out the sermon series for the coming year. And I said, you know, for the summer, you know, in light of who's here, let's do a sermon on finishing well. And he looked at me and he said, finishing well? I feel like we're just getting started. I said, Doug, that's it. And, uh... You know, because to finish well as a Christian is to always keep in mind that we're just getting started. That when we die, you know, that's just the next phase of things really getting going. And so that's how we finish well. And whether we're young or old, we're always in seasons of finishing and starting. And the way we start well is to keep our eyes on how we want to finish. And so 2 Timothy is like the perfect letter for us to look at because this is Paul, who is certainly finishing well, he's in prison, he knows he's going to be executed, and he is passing on his final thoughts to his young protege, Timothy. And so we have both an example in Paul of how to finish well, and also lessons for us on on how to do it, based on what he tells Timothy. Um, So with that in mind, let's, let's pray before we jump into the passage. God, we ask that you would um, open our hearts and our minds to hear from you, um, that we would uh, finish well and get started um, for your sake, by your power. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we unpack this passage, we're going to look at three things. The sorrow, the story, and the spirit. The sorrow, the story, and the spirit. So first, the sorrow. Paul is writing to Timothy in this letter to encourage him. And he says, I remember your tears. So what's going on? Well, you know, we can guess based on everything that's in this letter, Timothy is discouraged. And why is that? Well, so first, his spiritual father is in prison, is going to be executed soon. And Timothy is facing opposition and difficulties with false teachers creating all sorts of problems for the church. Right? The church is in its early phases, getting started, and there is all sorts of opposition. And 
we also know from here, from other passages in Scripture, that Timothy received a supernatural gift for ministry. And you say, oh, I want to hear a lot about that. Well, we don't know exactly what that was, but we know that you know, the elders, including Paul, came around Timothy, laid hands. Something supernatural happened, and he's got some uh, equipping for ministry through the power of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, I think uh, based on how Paul advised him, it's possible that it was teaching or evangelism. Um, so if I say teaching, that's, that's why, I think, you know. So he's got this supernatural gift, but Timothy is letting his ministry gift burn low. Paul says, you need to fan it into flame. And not only that, but Timothy is afraid. And that connection is important. See, Timothy's not just discouraged because life is hard. But Timothy is discouraged in particular because the work of the gospel appears to be floundering. Paul is going to be killed. Christians everywhere face opposition and persecution. And he sees the effects of false teachers spreading lies and undermining good words and good works. And people are believing them. People are following after these false teachers and living lives of debauchery, and they think in the name of Jesus. And so he's tempted to not exercise his gift. He's tempted to give up. What's the point? And you can imagine, right, the Apostle Paul, one of the most spiritually gifted men in history, right, who imparted a supernatural gift to Timothy, right, Paul, who raised him spiritually in the faith, Right, who mentored him and guided him. I mean, this is like the best training you can get for ministry, maybe apart from what Paul or, or Peter got, like directly from Jesus. And Timothy is tempted to give up. Right? He re- the gift he received supernaturally, the discouragement's too much. He sees the opposition, he sees the failure, he feels the burden personally. And it's more than he can take. And I'm willing to say that every one of us is tempted to feel like Timothy at times. We have callings. We have responsibilities. We have things we're good at. But, you know, none of us have the certainty of the calling that Timothy had. I mean, I, for example, didn't have the greatest missionary in history lay his hands on me, have power come over me. And I know that this is what I'm commissioned to do. I mean, did you? I mean, Timothy is probably facing greater opposition than many of us. But if Timothy can be ready to give up on his calling, you know, I mean, how much more will we? Our children rebel. They don't listen. Our relationship with them is constantly in distress. I mean, what's the point anymore, right? Or we have family members we try to reach out to. We want to forgive. We want to... We want to make amends, but every time we do, they just lash out again and again, and why do we keep doing it? Or your relationship with your spouse has grown cold, and they're not willing to put in the work, so why should you? We try to take the high ground with coworkers or friends or you know whoever it is, but these relationships just aren't getting better. Whatever we face, wherever we're tempted to give up, we need to hear what Paul has to say to Timothy to encourage him and to encourage us. So that's the discouragement we see in this passage. But what we don't see is discouragement in Paul. 
Paul is in even worse circumstances than Timothy is. But we don't see him giving up on his gift in ministry. Paul's in prison, but he's not in self-pity. He's focusing on the next generation. He's thinking of what he can offer to those who are following after him. Paul constantly thinks about the next generation as you read through this passage in this letter. And Paul takes his final moments to press in to those in need of encouragement and need. And in need of direction. But, you know, imagine how every one of us would feel if we were Paul. Paul has sacrificed everything for ministry. Paul grew up getting the best grades, always top of his class, impressing all the elites. And then he's on the fast track to the inner circle. He's going to be the religious powers. They love him. He's accomplished. If he does what they tell him, if he follows the rules, he will be a powerful, respected person with a job, with work that he finds meaningful and important. But then suddenly... He walks away from all that. He quits being a Pharisee. He gives up all the power and prestige along with that. And instead, he joins the group of people that he and the Pharisees were persecuting. He goes from being a somebody to being a persecuted nobody in the eyes of the world. And he spends the rest of his life being beaten within an inch of his life being shipwrecked, being arrested. He was stoned literally to death and then miraculously revived, all the while addressing massive controversies within the church, fighting off opposition within the church and without. And now he's imprisoned. He's going to die. And the stress of ministry is leading his protege to be tempted to give up. How would you feel? And you know what? At the end of our lives... We have more of our life behind us than in front of us. And so we tend to think about our past. We have lots of times to think about our regrets or the things we wish we could change. And a lot of us, we don't know what to do with our regrets. Maybe they haunt us. Maybe we wish we could atone. We wish we could change things. We wish we could apologize. And Paul has a lot he could regret. He personally oversaw the systematic persecution of Christians. He was directly or indirectly responsible for the death and torture of the people he has now spent the rest of his life giving his life for. Can you imagine the memories of the faces of those you persecute as you drag them from their homes and throw them in the prison? You could be tearing families apart. And, just, and the children are there watching. And Paul even says of himself, he is the chief of sinners. He is the foremost sinner. He is well aware of his past. But Paul is not in sorrow. Paul even says right here, he says, I worship God with a clear conscience. I mean, what on earth is going on there? How can he say that? What's his secret? Let's look at what he tells Timothy. So that's the sorrow. So second, the story. So to deal with the sorrow that Timothy is dealing with, or that we would deal with if we were Paul, we have to remember the story we're part of. So first Paul says, remember your identity. Paul says that he is an apostle by the will of God according to the promises of Christ. 
So this is significant in two ways. So first, Paul has a calling. Apostle means sent one. Okay, so Paul knows that he's sent. He doesn't just live for himself, for his own comfort, his own plans, you know, the the things that he wants. He has a calling. He's been sent. He has a mission. And he interprets everything in his life, everything that's happening, everything he's experiencing in terms of that mission. You might say, well, that's nice that Paul has a mission, but I'm just a normal person. Every Christian has a mission to defeat darkness by walking in light, by faithfully obeying Jesus in every area of our lives, to fight injustice, to expose falsehood by graciously, lovingly devoting ourselves to the truth, to proclaim the best news of forgiveness that the world could bear. So we have a mission. So Paul, first, Paul has a mission. But second... Paul received his mission. He didn't achieve it. He's an apostle by the will of God. That means God willed that Paul have this mission. Paul didn't will it. Paul didn't choose it. And this is crucial. It means that Paul can have complete trust that God is in control. He's an apostle by God's will. According to God's promises. His trust is in God's will And God's promises. So despite the suffering and opposition, Paul doesn't trust in his situation. Paul's hope is not in how things are going. His hope is in God's will and God's promises. It's not his calling. It's God's calling for Paul. And so that's why Paul says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors. I mean, you know, you read that and you think that's kind of weird. What's going on there? Paul knows his life is part of a bigger picture. Paul's life, his mission, everything he does is part of God's promises to bless his people and through his people the world and to reconcile all things to himself. And so that's why Paul says, look, I serve God and so did my ancestors. It's not like a secondary thought, like he's saying, writing to, to Timothy, oh, oh, by the way, also my ancestors worship God. Did you know that? It's a declaration that God is the God of history, that the Lord has made promises in history, throughout history, and now those promises have been fulfilled and are being fulfilled. Paul has hope because God has been faithful in the past and because all of history is part of Paul's history. And that story, all the Bible, tells us the story of our spiritual ancestors and of God's faithfulness to us through them. When Israel was enslaved in Egypt, God rescued them from slavery with signs and wonders and parting the Red Sea. And when they were in the desert, he fed them with manna. He drove out their enemies and he established for them a kingdom. And through the prophets for centuries, God has promised a greater redeemer, a greater salvation, a greater king. And Paul knows that all the promises of God have found their yes in Jesus. Paul's living on the other side of the resurrection. God's promise to renew all things, to establish his heavenly kingdom everywhere and forever. Paul has no doubt that it will come to pass. Because God has always promised it. 
And Jesus Christ conquered sin and death. Nothing else compares to that story. He can look at his circumstances and say, that's great. God is the God of history. God is the God of promise. And so Paul tells Timothy that he needs to remember his identity and his story. And so he says, Timothy, my beloved child. That's not just how Paul feels about him. When you become a Christian, you don't become servant in residence or a privileged employee. You become a beloved child. A child is a legal and a relational status that you cannot lose. You can't lose your status as son or daughter. Your failures, your struggles, you don't stop being a son or daughter. And you don't stop being beloved. Because God didn't love you because you were succeeding and have it all together. God loves you because he loves you. It's circular. You're beloved because God loves you. And God loved you before there was anything in you that made you lovely. You were a child because you were united to Jesus who died for you when you were his enemy. So you must remember, you are a beloved child. God treats you just as he treats Jesus. I mean, do you remember, when Jesus was baptized, what did God say? He says, this is my beloved son. This is my son whom I love, with whom I well pleased. And because of Jesus' work for us, he bought that blessing for us. So Paul says, remember the identity you've received. And notice Paul also says to Timothy, I remember your faith, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. Again, what is Paul doing there? Did Timothy forget, you know, whose family members are? No. He's reminding Timothy of his own story. Just like Paul remembers that he's part of a greater story that includes his ancestors remembering God's faithfulness in his generations. Paul tells Timothy to remember his personal story and God's God's faithfulness in his family and his life. Timothy, you're discouraged right now, but remember, God has been faithful in your family before just as he has been faithful to our ancestors throughout history. You know, we have to remember that Timothy and Paul lived in an extremely patriarchal society. So what Greek and Roman society really cared about is, who's your daddy? And Timothy, his daddy's Greek, and, you know, I think based on this passage, not a believer. Otherwise, I think Paul would have mentioned your parents. But Paul says to Timothy, society may care about your father. Society may tell you that you are the son of your father. You're defined by who your dad is. But God is an incredible God who works in surprising ways. God has been faithful in your line, no matter what society thinks. Your mother, your grandmother, God has been working in them and through them to prepare you. You know, throughout history, God has chosen the ones society says are the wrong ones to choose. Do you ever feel like God wouldn't choose you or shouldn't choose you? Or do you feel like your story of God's faithfulness just isn't good enough? Look, God chooses the secondborn, not the eldest. He chooses barren women. 
He chooses to come to earth as a poor carpenter in a small town living in a place where important people don't live. That's why they would say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Jesus chose tax collectors and sinners and women caught in adultery. And the first people who met the risen Savior were women. People who in that day had no permissible legal testimony in court. But God chose them. God didn't want them for their legal testimony. He didn't want them for their legal witness. They were loved and cherished and beautiful to them, and he honors them, even if the society then wouldn't. So Paul says to Timothy, don't you dare forget how God has been at work in your life, personally. And don't you forget how God has been at work in history. Don't forget the story you're part of. So has God been working in your life in surprising ways? I promise you, if you pay attention, you'll see ways that God has been preparing you all your life. Maybe not the way you would plan. Maybe not the way you would ask. But God has brought people into your lives or situations. God has delivered you through sufferings and trials. And you may be tempted to doubt that God was there. You may, in your heart, really want to reject that idea. And if you don't know, let me tell you what the Bible promises. God has been with you. You might say, Greg, you don't know the suffering I've been through when my child was taken from me. You don't know how my parents abandoned me. You don't know. I don't know. But I do know that God does. And he was there with you. Now, before we move on to our last point, Timothy is not just discouraged. He's afraid. That's why Paul says, God has not given us a spirit of fear. That's a spirit of cowardice. That's another way you could translate that. And why is he afraid? Because the opposition, the trials, they appear bigger than God. Timothy, you need to remember the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Lois and Eunice, the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. You need to remember the story. That will drive out your fear. And that brings us to our last point. So we've seen the sorrow and the story and finally the spirit. Paul says, because of your faith, right, we have received a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. So notice how Paul motivates Timothy to fan and to flame his gift. Paul doesn't say, hey, it's not so bad. Things will work out. That's how we sometimes try to encourage people, right? He also doesn't give self-help advice, like, just try harder. Believe in yourself. You will succeed. And he could have added, you have this supernatural gift, by the way, so you really can believe it. You know, the rest of us, I don't know, we can try hard and see what happens. But that isn't what Paul says. Instead, Paul reminds Timothy of the power of his faith. Timothy, exercise your gift because God has given you a spirit of power, love, and self-control. What Timothy needs to be reminded of to exercise his gift is the power behind the gift 
and the purpose behind the gift, the spirit behind the gift. And the power is the Holy Spirit, God, and the purpose is love. And when Timothy is out of control and in despair and fear, the Holy Spirit will bear fruit of self-control in his life. And, you know, it's really interesting. Self-control here, you know, we think like, okay, keeping ourselves... Another way that word is, is sometimes you've maybe seen it sound mind. It means being safe-minded. It means that he has a proper perspective on what's going on. The way to drive out fear is to have a proper perspective on what's going on. You might say, well, proper perspective on suffering and pain and opposition is to remember the story, to remember that God is bigger than the things he's afraid of. And the, re- the ultimate reason, he says, you have to remember your faith. You have to remember the spirit you've received is because the point is not the strength of his faith. The point is the strength of the one his faith is in. And Jesus perfectly knows what we are going through. Isaiah 53 says that Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Jesus was despised, rejected by men, falsely accused. He spent his public ministry homeless, misunderstood. But Isaiah 53 also says that Jesus bore our grief and carried our sorrows. Jesus knew his calling was to bring life to all as a continuation and completion of God's story of redemption throughout the Old Testament. So when Jesus faced trials, betrayal, oppression, torture, false accusations, death, Jesus' face was fixed like flint. The sorrows didn't stop him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed to God, you know, if it were up to me, the sorrow is too much. But God, not my will, your will be done. He didn't waver as he approached his destiny. He knew the story he was fulfilling. He knew his calling according to the will of God, according to the promises of God. And at the cross, no fear of death could stop him from saving his people and finishing the task. And that is where Jesus' power and love and self-control are best shown. It's from the cross Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I mean, right? They're murdering him. What power, love, and self-control does it require to pray that prayer? But his mission was forgiveness. His mission was the restoration of all things. He knew the joy of completing the mission would far surpass all his sorrows, even in that moment, even as he hung forsaken on the cross. You know, Jesus was just getting started. Jesus rose from the grave victorious, ushering in the resurrection power of God that will one day establish a new heavens and a new earth in which all evil is defeated and all tears are wiped away. In his death and resurrection, Jesus started the greatest movement in history. I mean, Christian or not, everybody has to agree, Jesus is one of the most influential, important people in history. And Paul, Paul ended up being one of the most influential people in history. 
by faithfully following Jesus' call to share the gospel around the Roman Empire, Paul completely reshaped the course of history. I mean, when Constantine declared Rome Christian, it was because Christianity had already won. Paul's mission had already taken root. Now, did Paul know that as he sat in prison? Was that, did he know that he was going to be one of the most influential men in history? Probably not. But he didn't need to. Because he trusted in the one that he knew was changing history. He trusted in the God of history, the creator of all things. He trusted that God would complete what he had started, even if it didn't look like it was happening. And so can we. So if you're finishing, this is how you finish well. Recognize that you have been called to a mission greater than yourself. And the story you are part of, remember it and see how you can pass it on to the next generation. Your story is not over. And to my wiser, more mature friends, you know, you are incredibly gifted. And through your experiences, God has honed your gifts over decades. And I fear that too many people uh, underestimate how much you have to offer especially to the young people. Now, some of you might think that the Williams students are intimidating. They're not. They put on a front. And I have heard so many of them say, all they really want is to have relationships with real people. And yes, I'm insinuating something about the kind of people that they're surrounded with. They want just to know real people. And they know that means people here. You have so much to offer. And they know it. They may not know what they know, but they know something. Now, finishing well means fanning into flame the ways God has gifted you. Now, fanning into flame, that means that, you know, people who can tell, they should look on and they should say that you are on fire. Right? You should look aflame with love and devotion to God and service to him and his mission. Like People who know what you're doing with your life should think that you're crazy. If they don't look at you that way, then maybe you need to fan into flame the fire you've got. And if you're just getting started, basically everything I just said, uh, know where you came from. Know the story you're part of. Know the foundation you're building on. Because you're getting started in the greatest story of history. And your foundation is the rock, Jesus Christ. Remember the power and love and self-control that you have in Christ. And boldly fan into flame. Take risks. Face fears. Live a life of power and love as you follow Jesus. And ask for wind if you need it. Our job is to fan in the flame. But, you know, we can ask for help. But, you know... Take hold of what God has given you. And if you don't know Jesus, or if you aren't sure what you believe, well, what sorrows are you dealing with? And let me tell you if, you, if you put your faith in Jesus, the Bible says that this is the story that you're part of. Listen to what Revelation 21 says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Follow the one who can wipe away all your tears and give you everlasting joy. The one who bore your griefs and carried your sorrows. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our risen Savior, that you bore our sorrows, and Lord, that you meet us in our sorrows. And God, we pray that you would pour out your Spirit afresh upon us, that we would be on fire for you. God, stir in our hearts that we would fan into flame what you have given us. God, breathe on us with your Holy Spirit if we need spiritual oxygen, Lord. God, we pray that we would live for you, trusting in you because you are the God of history and your story is the greatest story. We thank you for bringing us into it, for loving us even when we were unlovely. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.